Dotnet Rocks episode 784 with guest Bob Martin. Recorded live Wednesday, June 6th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard, we're in Oslo, Norway at the Norwegian Developers Conference, uh, sitting in the fishbowl in the middle of the Oslo spectrum. Also known as the Oslo Information Booth. People keep coming in here and ask us questions in Norwegian, and we have to say, I'm sorry, we only speak English. And they have a very confused look on their face. But just picture somebody walking into your room, opening the door, looking right at you, and going, blah, 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 blah. That's kind of the experience we're getting. Uh, I mean, we point them. The sad part is half the time when they do ask a question in English, we know the answer. Barbecue. Right to the left. That's the problem. Get the ribs. Yeah, get the ribs. Well, anyway, better know framework. All right, what do you got? So, in ASP.NET MVC4, there's a new attribute called allow anonymous and there's also an authorized attribute but i'm reading from uh code ad hoc.com and uh, this is a post from march 28th so let me just read from the post i've been writing a number of asp.net mvc4 tutorials on new features as i either come across them or use them one of the new features in asp.net mvc4 is the allow anonymous attribute that helps you secure an entire ASP.NET MVC4 website or controller while providing a convenient means of allowing anonymous users access to certain controller actions, like the login and register actions. If you look at the account controller in a default ASP.NET MVC4 internet project, you'll see allow anonymous attributes sprinkled throughout various login and register controller actions for this very reason. And there's some great demo code right there on the, uh, on the page. So that's pretty cool. You know, you turn it off by default, but then allow anonymous here and there. Just an attribute. And, you know, we forgot about attributes. I didn't forget about them, but we, we don't talk about attributes that much anymore. No, and it does change a lot of stuff. Like, for me, looking at this, uh, allow anonymous is just allowing the reduction of workload on your server as you scale up. Don't secure everything just because it's fun. Secure what you need to. Secure what you need to secure. Isn't that a song by John Mayer? <laughs> I really don't know. All right. Well, anyway, uh, who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 738, which was the one we did with Rob Lab talking about the security development lifecycle, now that I've made fun of security. And uh, this particular comment is from Jake Fox, who said, uh, Great show. I didn't really start thinking about security of my code until I became aware of the extent of threats today. Organizations now must worry about not just interruption of service or loss of reputation, but direct theft of intellectual property. One thing I wish Rob had touched on more was the importance of really understanding the assets you are trying to protect. If your application touches important data, it is essential to segregate access to that data. Ready Secure Code can all be for naught if a single compromised user account results in the loss of all data the system touches. Being aware of who should be accessing data and how that data should be accessed makes it easier to write code that not only reduces the chances of a successful attack, but also reduces the consequences of security lapses outside the developer's control. 
Uh, great comment, Jake. I would also say, you know, actually assessing the value of that data, you know, that makes it a lot easier to start spending money on securing stuff properly, adding in the infrastructure that protects it. Uh, and, you know, getting back to the reality, there's a great XKCD uh, comic about you, know, you spend a million dollars on an encryption protocol and a guy gets access to it with a $5 wrench he threatens somebody with for their password. <laughs> Uh, which is an interesting problem. Yeah, sometimes the problems don't exist in the software. No, this is a this is a meat space problem that you know. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that when I'm drinking coffee, dude. <laughs> it's a meat space problem, right? As soon as you're in the meat space, you have to deal with the fact that yeah, you can beat a password out of someone. Well, you know, the lock on the door is probably the easiest and you know simplest solution to securing a server. Yeah, and, think about it. and the point really being, it doesn't matter how secure the data is, if they can take the computer, the rest <laughs> doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a silly one. All right, but that's enough security for me. And Jake, thanks so much for your comment. We're going to send a mug out to you. And if you'd like a mug, just write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com. Oh, too much. Well, people, I got to tell you one more time that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with over 250 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and people that uh, you hear on this show. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month. Plus, you get a free 10-day trial for 200 minutes of access to their vast library. They offer a wide range of topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything Microsoft. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. Okay. And with that, let me introduce uh, Uncle Bob. Robert C. Martin, a.k.a. Uncle Bob, has been a software professional since 1970 and an international software consultant since 1990. <laughs> what? Oh, it just sounds so highfalutin, doesn't oh, it? Oh, okay. He's just <laughs> Uncle Bob. International software consultant. <laughs> Who writes this stuff? In the last 40 years, he has worked in various capacities on literally hundreds of software projects. In 01, he initiated the meeting of the group that created Agile Software Development from Extreme Programming Techniques and served as the first chairman of the Agile Alliance. He's also a leading member of the worldwide software craftsmanship movement, Clean Code. Welcome back, Uncle Bob. Thank you very much. You are a big deal, though. I mean, you uh, laugh, but, uh. you know, you're kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah, well, I, everybody gets their moment in the sun, I guess. Sure. Hmm. But you were, you know, the agile, one of the guys that was saying, hey, let's, let's do it this way. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the, one of the guys, I mean, the, the folks who really drove that movement were people like Kent Beck and mm-hmm. Ward Cunningham and... And Mike Cohn has certainly done a lot of that lately. So yeah. a lot of us in that crowd. Still driving along. But, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things I like about the old bio uh, was this focus on object orientation. Yes. Because it's sort of as mature as it's going to get, don't you think? Have we run the course on object orientation? Well, I'd, it's like asking if we've run the course on structured programming. Mm. You know? um, Object orientation is a technology, and we it was identified here in Oslo, right? In, right. in 1966? Yeah. And I just talked to a guy who was a student of Ole Ohandal and Christian Nygaard. And he walked up to me and said, you know, I've been a programmer for 38 years, and I, I went to school here in Oslo, and those guys were my professors. They're the guys who invented this. Right. Alan Kay kind of took it in a certain direction. Yarnas Drustrup took it in another direction. Um, 
but we pretty much explored it. We know what OO is. We know mm-hmm. what object orientation is. And does it need to evolve? Yeah, that's that's the thing, right? <laughs> Do we need yet another feature every year in order for something to be usable? And I, I think that's a pitfall we fall into. Well, it is. We fall into it with all of our languages mm-hmm. and. Uh, I think we've got a panel coming up, don't we, on Agile. Yeah. Ooh, the future of Agile. Well, wait a second. Why does Agile need a future? <laughs> yeah. You use it. That's it. Could you go home. Right software. I like a good steak. How is steak evolving? I, so. Now, I'm pulling out my old hat. <laughs> Thinking back in the 80s when, when we were trying to get serious about building code. Now, you know, C++ was new, that whole thing. Oh, yeah. We had encapsulation... Uh, polymorphism. Yes, yes. And what's the other one? Why is it on my head? Inheritance. And inheritance. And I think encapsulation polymorphism gets used all the time. And inheritance, haven't we basically declared that as evil? Well, so the the gang of four in their book, 95 book, Mm -hmm. Design Patterns book, they're the ones that kind of said, wait, you know, we're doing too much of this inheritance. Uh, We should soften that a little bit. Right. Uh, Although most of the design patterns had plenty of inheritance in Mm -hmm. it. Encapsulation is an interesting one. Uh, it's not as though OO invented encapsulation, no. right? We were encapsulating things in C from the late 60s on. Hell, Assembler was encapsulating. If you talk about different files and... Absolutely, right? You could, you could completely hide variables in sure. C or in Assembler or in languages like that. And then in C++, suddenly you couldn't hide them anymore. They <laughs> had to be in the header file. They were there. And in Java or in .NET... They're there. Mm-hmm. You import a class, you see all the variables. You may not be able to access them, but they're there. <laughs> Sorry. Whereas in C... Don't touch the private members. Exactly. Well, why did you have to say that in the first place? In C, you just couldn't see them at all. Right. So the OO languages that we have adopted have actually weakened encapsulation. They've hmm. not strengthened it. So we've kind of softened the whole encapsulation thing even though it seems to be part of OO's definition. And then inheritance, well, we used to do stuff like that in C all the time, and in assembly language all the time. You take a data structure, and you make a, another similar data structure that has similar elements in it, and you cast one to the other and right. pass Add it a few around bits, the system. Yeah, okay. Go again. So we were doing that all along. But we were really taught, I mean, I was taught that, you know, inheritance should be used in all of your data structures, you know, from a person to a customer and from this to a that. And, you know, because it was the it was the hammer of the time, everything looked like a nail. Well, right. So we had this um, this is a word. Right. 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 Is a and yeah. has a. Yeah. And so you'd, you'd uh, say, well, uh, a customer is a person. So a customer must inherit from person. Right. Unless, of course, the customer's a company, and then, whoa, it must, be, must need multiple inheritance. A customer inherits from a person and a company. Yeah, it gets crazy. It, well, now you're sort of trying silliness. to justify cramming things to appease the compiler. It's, it's silliness. Why do we have inheritance in a language? Mm-hmm. And in, um, in statically typed languages like C Sharp, Java, C++, we have that to facilitate polymorphism. Mm-hmm. What we're really after is this polymorphic dispatch. In languages like Ruby and Clojure and Python and... Dynamics. Well, then we don't use inheritance for that at all. Right. right? Don't need to. So inheritance becomes this kind of relationship that you may use every once in a while if you need to borrow a variable or a function. It's kind of like a hooker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> go down the street and see if there's a you know, little inheritance not, off not to I the know side from experience. there. I'm Honey, just I really it was wasn't doing any inheritance on my conference trip. <laughs> no, really, I promise. I miss Rory sometimes. No offense. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Because I know he would have grabbed onto that and run with it. Oh, yeah, of course. He wouldn't have just gone, oh. <laughs> sorry, I'm not quick with the hooker jokes. I'm just not that guy. <laughs> Now that I've completely derailed our conversation, it's all right. Sorry, it's all right. But sorry to be so disrespectful, <laughs> Uncle Bob. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, makers of Telerik Open Access. You're just about to start another huge .NET project aiming to deliver a high-performing data access application in the shortest term possible. One way to go is wisely allocate a few weeks of dev time in the project plan to create a robust hand-coded data access layer. Or there's always the easy way out. You can save yourself tons of development and testing time and focus on the business logic that your customers demand. Here's Telerik Open Access ORM, the tool that takes care of the data access layer of your app so you don't have to. Open Access ORM generates all the code you need in just a few points and clicks through a powerful visual designer and works with all popular databases and .NET platforms on the market. Download a free trial at Telerik.com slash openaccessrocks and get instant control of your data. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. What we actually wanted out of polymorphic behavior was this idea of extensibility without you know, rewriting everything. Yeah. Right? I, I worked on a project around banking where we kept coming up with different payment schemes. And so being able to plug into the transactional processing engine without having to revise it each time there was a new payment scheme really worked for us. I mean, it was a good model. You changed a relatively small piece of code, and it worked with all the other code that was already there. Yeah, that's the, the beauty of polymorphism is that you get to replace certain modules without even knowing that they're being replaced. Mm-hmm. The, the main algorithms just make these calls, and they don't know what's being called. And we used to actually do that in C quite a bit. Um, the device-independent I.O. The, right. the device-independent I.O. stuff we used to do. Uh, get char, put char, all the standard in and standard out. But mm-hmm. that was essentially polymorphic behavior. But in C, it was difficult. It was hard to do that. You had to manage pointers to functions. You, you had to follow this convention where you always called your functions through pointers. And so it broke down. It was hard to do. And languages like C++ came along and just made it trivial. Well, just interfaces sort of simplify that, don't they? So now interfaces are an interesting one. Why the heck do we have interfaces? <laughs> you know, wh- who thought that that would be a good idea in a language? C++ doesn't have interfaces. Mm-hmm. Just has classes with uh, abstract methods. Pure virtual functions, we called them. That yeah, I know. Every once in a while I get a pure virtual function call error. Yes, yes, yes. When you call one from a constructor. Well, why do we have interfaces? Who invented this notion of interfaces? And it, it came from the, the Java world and, of course, got inherited into the .NET world right away. Mm-hmm. No pun intended. Um, no pun intended. And um, the reason behind that was this aversion to multiple inheritance. It was a hack, a workaround for right. the idea that well, you know, we don't know what to do about it, multiply inheriting from a, an object, so we're going to create these interfaces that you can multiply implement. But you can only inherit from one base class. But it turns out having contracts are a very usable, very very workable solution to a big problem. Oh, it's a wonderful thing to have a class with no implemented methods. 
Why we have to have a syntax element for this, I don't know. <laughs> That's, that was a constraint that was put in there because of multiple inheritance. Wouldn't it be nice to have real multiple inheritance? Right? Some folks thought it was evil. Oh, gosh, no, we don't want that. Because it feels like something that could get out of control. Yeah, so, so can everything. Yeah. I'm a but, programmer. Boy, can I drive things out of control? Yeah. But, it's your foot. Yeah, it's your foot, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Slogan for C++. And, you know, I want to be able to aim close to my big toe. Yeah. I'm not going to hit it. I'm not. I swear I'm not. I'm not. I just need the <laughs> bullet a millimeter away from my big I'm toe. I'm trying to cut okay. my toenails here. <laughs> <laughs> just hand me a magnum. Okay. <laughs> Trimming those babies right down. I'm an expert. Well, you know, I want the right. You to just do that. don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So we have a an interesting situation brewing. Mm-hmm. Uh, objects are all about polymorphism, but they're also about state. Objects right. contain variables, and variables change their state over time. And the emphasis seems to be moving in a direction opposed to that. Yeah, the very stateless. Stateless languages like F Sharp mm-hmm. can be stateless if you do it right. Yeah. Or the Scala people over on the Java side, or the Closure people who are trying to dance across both platforms, um, attempting to create these stateless languages, or at least languages where state is under. Very intense discipline. Yes. You, know, you must obey the protocol if you change the state of a variable. The state and asynchronicity aren't necessarily good dancing partners. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Okay, you have multiple threads, then state can get out of control. Although there's a, a, lovely, a lovely section in, um, in the book, uh, Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs, 248 pages in. 248 pages in, and they, they do this, this really long discussion for, throughout all those pages, gorgeous descriptions of algorithms and uh, this and that and this and that. And then at 248 pages, they say, now we have to destroy your life. Now we have to apologize because we're introducing an assignment statement. And they make this lovely argument about how the assignment statement ruins the model of computing. And I remember reading that. 248 pages. I had to go back through all the old pages. No assignment statements in any of that code. You couldn't believe you'd read that much of a exactly. book. Exactly. Without programming, without even noticing, nobody assigned anything. You're saying there's no equal, this equals that. No, this equals that. Wow. All argument passing, all returning, all functional programming. Right. So then they introduce the assignment statement, and they make this lovely argument that an assignment statement introduces time yes. into the program. An assignment statement creates a boundary above which the system behaves in one way, below which the exact same code behaves in a different way. Mm -hmm. And that's a complication that they wanted to avoid. So they apologize profusely. Then they go another 50 pages, and they introduce another apology, huge apology, for threads. And I I love the fact that they equated these two things. Assignment is as damaging to a, a computer program as threads are. Right. Now, we are starting to acknowledge that mm-hmm. because we've got this problem, which is the multi-core problem. Right. You, know, you, you got laptops there. What, how many cores you got in there? You yeah. have four in that one? We're talking about giving um, away a 64-core. This one's a big one. This, this Acer <laughs> it's got has eight. a big computer. Yeah, it's got eight. It's got eight. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, you know, where is the 16-core machine? Well, they're it's out coming. there. Yeah. 
and the 32 and the 64, the density continues to rise even mm-hmm. though the speed doesn't. And that, that, is, that means that we as programmers have this problem. The hardware guys have carried us on their backs for 40 years. Yep. Cranking up Absolutely. the speed. Cranking up the speed. Cranking up the speed. And, and now they've just turned around and said, screw you guys. Well, there's no more. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you can't get much faster than you know, the way they've got. We've hit the physical limit. We can't do the magic anymore. There are no rabbits to pull out of the hat, any left. And you programmers are going to have to deal with this because we're going to make these machines faster and faster and faster by making more cores. Right. How are you going to solve that? Yeah. And so here we are, a bunch of object-oriented programmers who love to have objects with state in them. Mm-hmm. We like to use the equal sign. <laughs> we love the equal sign. <laughs> and now we're going to face a world where the equal sign is really hard. So if there's a future to OO, it may be in the, the uh, removal of state from the concepts of OO, or mm-hmm. the intense discipline imposed upon yes. state change. It's very difficult to have OO without state, it seems to me. It, well, it does at first blush. You think, how can you have an object if you cannot change state? Yeah. But this is something functional languages have been dealing with for 50 right. years. Because everything is read-only. It's immutable. You make copies of the object, and you, you create new objects. Instead of mutating an object, you create a new object. And, and at first blush, every programmer says, oh, my God, that's going to be so time-consuming. We have to copy things. But the languages are very clever. They don't actually copy things. Right. They do this nifty structural sharing thing. But, in fact, now you can take advantage of those cores, so yeah. your app is going to naturally be fast. So, well, we hope so. Anyway, that's, mm-hmm. that's the hope, that functional languages will allow us to write effective programs on 4096 cores. Do you think C-sharp will ever get to the point where it's all functional all the time? Or no. Because the fact that people can shoot themselves in the foot, they will? No, I don't, I don't think C-sharp will go that way. Mm-hmm. I, that gets back to the whole idea of what's, what's the future of OO? What's the future of C-sharp? Mm-hmm. Why does C-sharp need a future? <laughs> in, in the sense that why does it constantly need to evolve? Because it works really, really well right yeah. now. Now, they've, they've, they've added some good features. Else. But do we have to keep doing that and doing that and doing that? Uh, the C++ community is virtually destroyed by the ever-encroaching featureism of the, of the language. Mm-hmm. Adding stuff to the language. Why do we need that? We do need different languages. Mm-hmm. But C-sharp doesn't have to be the be-all and end-all. It's got a good place. It's being used in enterprise systems now. Yep. But can we come up with a better language? And, and there are languages out there that are trying to address this issue. Well, and I, we've done shows in the past on Clojure, but Clojure is one of those languages I looked at and thought, this is really well thought out as a way of thinking parallel, natively. Parallel by default, rather than, you know, parallel by practice. Yeah, Closer's a very interesting language. F-sharp is an interesting language. Mm-hmm. Scala is. Um, are we going to find some other language like that? Okay, I mean, we probably are. Some good functional language that we can use to deal with this multi-core problem. And then the notion of objects will shift, We'll still keep our polymorphism. We'll still keep our encapsulation. We will still have state, but we won't mutate it in the same way. Mm -hmm. We don't change state casually. You do it carefully. Very disciplined, as Mm -hmm. though it were a database transaction. Sure. Right? Now, is there a way to... I mean, you look at a string object. A string object in .NET is immutable. 
but yet we can change immutable. it. It's yeah. immutable. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When we change it behind the scenes, a copy is made, and all of that works really nicely because we need to have strings need to be fast, right? So is it possible that the language won't change, but the implementation of the language will change so that objects are immutable? I'm not sure how you do that when assignment is built into the language so intrinsically. But it, um, but it works in the case of a string. It does work in the case of a string, although the, the programmers know that. They know do what they? they're doing is they're either swap well. <laughs> do they really, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember the early days of, of Java where, where um, uh, we were all told to use string buffers instead of strings. Right. And I think that did actually go into .NET for a while. But well, we have a string builder. Yes, the same idea. that happened in Java as well. And then the language took it over and said, never mind. We'll do it. We'll do That'll it be for fine. you. Okay, fine, fine. <laughs> um, but we all know that those strings are are not getting mutated. You know, there's a builder behind the scenes, and they're getting swapped. You know what I think back to is the, remember the very early days of Visual Basic, where never heard of it, where we didn't even have variable typing. Right? It was all just everything was a variant. Yes, and yes. that got us into all kinds of problems. And then one day, and I believe it was in VB two, they introduced option explicit, and now as soon as you turn that on, anywhere that you hadn't explicitly declared a variable as a type, you got an error. I'm thinking VB4 introduced variant. Before that, we had typing. But variants were seen as, I think, I'm trying to remember, it's been a long time. Variants were seen as great at first, and then after people realized, oh, yeah, we have a type system for a reason. But but you're right. Option explicit said you had to define your variables. Option strict said you can't use variants. Well, I wonder if we couldn't introduce something like that into... C sharp that just said, "Hey, anywhere I try to assign something, I have to follow certain rules. Complain, and it'll lead me to fixing all of those." Things. Yeah, I suppose that's possible. You could create data structures that were declared immutable, or immutable by default, and then declared. Okay, you can imagine how much code that would break if you did that by mm-hmm. default. Oh, sure. Right. Okay. So maybe again, there's some way. To, why would you morph this language when you couldn't just make a new language that that's how it right, behaved? Right. And then you get away from the, this whole aspect of trying to believe you can fix your app. But if you think about it, you're trying to solve an asynchronous problem. You're trying to solve a multi-core problem. Yes. Your code isn't written to solve that problem now. So using another language isn't going to be any more painful than rewriting your code in the same language right. that has now immutable objects. Right, and maybe less the, painful. Yeah, less if, painful. If you have a, a language that is by default functional, mm-hmm. then you can rewrite your app and it'll just run in multi-cores. So you're right. I mean, there's this massive change in, in the way you have to even think about the problem. You can't just take an old program and make it run in a million cores. Now, we also have talked about this several times, which is, what types of applications lend themselves to the functional approach uh, to solve the multi-threaded problem or the asynchronous problem? In other words, am I just fine using uh, you know, C-sharp for my user interfaces or for my web applications? Uh, after all, you know, that's a sort of a built-in asynchronous model already. You know, a, so, a web server is by default asynchronous. I think that's a, a brewing crisis. Mm-hmm. And the crisis has to do with the fact that the hardware people are removing all of that speed-up hardware from the chips, the caching and the pipelining mm-hmm. and stuff. They're trying to make room for cores. 
Right. So our single-threaded processors are getting slower. Dumber. And dumber. Yeah, pipeline shorter. And Yeah, exactly. And the, um, the cores are supposed to take up the, the slack. And what I think that means is that I don't care what kind of application you're writing, it's got to run well on 1,000 cores. Right. Which means there is no certain type of application anymore. Well, yeah, why do you need to make an individual core super fast with all that smart L3 cache? Well, right, and so that's forth, the hardware guy. If we've got lots and lots of cores lying around and you can just spin everything off asynchronously, and so it takes a little longer. You've got them doing something else in the meantime. Yeah, you can imagine the hardware guys all going, you know, you guys, come on, I'm going to give you 10,000 cores. Just yeah. make it work faster. You're programmers. This yeah. is easy. Come on. <laughs> we've been doing this for 40 years. You can do it now. <laughs> Well, uh, let's pause for a minute, Richard, because you know what time it is. Must be that happy time again. Uh-oh. It's time to give away a Telerik Ultimate Collection to a, a lucky fan club winner. And today's winner is Dean Pendley. Congratulations, Dean. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for Dean. Uh, you win a Telerik Ultimate Collection. It's a $2,000 value from Telerik, all their stuff in one box. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, sign up for the fan club. Every year we're going to give away five grand worth of technology. And, you know, as we've been saying, we're, we haven't decided yet, but the, the coolest thing I've seen so far is a 64-core machine. So, as Bob says, I know he's smiling over there. Good luck with that. <laughs> Doubles as a space heater. Just remove the heat sinks and open up the case. <laughs> Do a few steady at home work units and your coffee will be warm. <laughs> we don't know what we're going to build. It'll be towards December, closer to the time. We know we're going to spend some good money on it. And if you'd like it to be involved in that, just go onto the website, .netrocks.com, click on the Get Free Stuff link, and you'll be entered. You know, so. you mentioned SETI at home. Sorry to interrupt, but <laughs> you mentioned SETI at home. And I, I had a, a whole bunch of computers in my house yeah. set up with SETI at home, which was a screensaver. Mm-hmm. Right. Back in the day? Yeah, back in the day. So I, I remember about a month later, I went down to my wife's computer. It SETI at home running on it, and it was very cool. And I turned it off. And there burned on the screen was the SETI at home oh. image. It wasn't a screensaver at all. It was a screen burner. Screen burner. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And well, and of course, computing power kept. You, I, it was one of those gauges that I used for just how fast my new machine was, was how quickly it could rip through a SETI at home work unit. <laughs> They're a lot faster now. And so the joke was that Richard used to have uh, water cooled PCs. And he had one of those things that you ran the pipe through that warmed your coffee <laughs> with, the, with the return coming off the CPU. So he said, oh, my coffee's cold. i got to run a few SETI and homework units. I was down in Florida uh, a couple of years back at a conference wearing shorts and a T-shirt and walked into the keynote speech. And they had the air conditioning cranked up like crazy. And everybody in the room was just freezing. And I thought, you know, I got my laptop here. And I just opened it up and started some program running. Right. <laughs> Heated my lap up just nice. It was Must have been there. a Pentium 5. <laughs> that was a couple of years ago. They got pretty warm back then. Yeah, they sure did. Yeah. yeah you could sterilize yourself if you actually put your laptop <laughs> on your lap. <laughs> well, there was a whole, and, uh, and ask me how I know, there was a whole generation of laptops that cooked themselves. <laughs> it was it was before the uh, before the Core Duo came out, I think. Yeah, the last of the big P4s, right? The things that never should have been in a laptop in the first place. Well, that was you know that was the the point where Intel had sort of pushed to the wall as fast as processors could go. I, yeah, think, yeah. I think that some of those CPUs tipped four gigahertz, 
And then that was about it. They backed they off. They backed them down, yeah. Backed down to about two and a half. Yeah, yeah. The P3 core came back in the core duo, and they just started putting more chips in. Mm. Uh, and they, you know, that was that whole wave. Very interesting time. And, it, and that's where Intel lost a lot of ground to AMD and, and arguably made them get better. But that was the, that was the generation that uh, my PC cooked itself because of that. And, you know, I, I took it apart and I looked at it and the capacitors were like swollen. <laughs> Cases oh, yes. were warped. Oh, yes. I, I had that happen with batteries, the incredible swelling batteries. Yeah, that's not good. No. There's lithium in there. No. Yeah. You don't want that to happen. I had that with botulism. <laughs> <laughs> I opened a can of cream of botulism soup one day. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread, but now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. Functional programming is not new. No, no, it's no, ancient. I, re- I remember the battle in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, you know, the object-oriented versus the functional guys, the Lisp guys and the C++ yep. guys and yep. the Eiffel guys. Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah, I remember yeah, Eiffel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, why do you think it's making a resurgence right now? Well, because of the multi-core Because problem. of the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really it. Because I, I, it always seems like a specialized programming problem kind of coding. Like, F-sharp doesn't seem like a general purpose language well, to and, me. And Lisp, Lisp doesn't seem that way. No. Most of the functional languages seem like... Yeah, they're academic, and uh, they're not for real applications. But I also know that a lot of the demos and samples they give are all seem to be mathematical and scientific and, uh, you know, in in less sort of real world, dare I say. Yes, yes. So so I've got a website, cleancoders.com, where I sell my videos. And that entire website is is written in Clojure as a way to demonstrate that you can do real world enterprise apps. Yeah. Uh, trivially in a language like Clojure, a nice functional language. Now, Clojure sits on top of the JVM. Or the CLR, depending or, or on which... Or the CLR. Yeah. F-sharp sits on top of the CLR. Yeah. At their cores, both the JVM and the CLR are very object-oriented. Like, the underlying infrastructure, the way that thing works, thinks in objects. It was built to run object-oriented languages. And so... I feel like they've stuck a steering wheel on a horse here. Like they found a way to make it work, but it's not necessarily efficient as it could be. Yeah, that that probably is true. Um, For example, one of the problems we have on the Java side, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure about the CLR side, is that the the JVM does not do tail call optimization. Right. And, you know... This is 2012, and that's a you know 50 year old technology. Why don't these things do tail call optimization? But that means that there's a um, a special little language gimmick that you have to use in order to do truly recursive functions, which in functional programming you must do. Yeah, 
you got to go recursive. And, and I do think CLR does have. Uh, so I've been told that both ways. I don't know which yeah. way it is. I, or they, maybe it's that they've got a clearer workaround mm-hmm. than the JVM has on it. But it, one of the things that I've been thinking, again, is this if you get to this idea of well, I want to persist the language and move into these new models, is can we slip out the runtime? replace it with a much more parallel thinking runtime and keep the language. And so why wouldn't you be able to do that? Yeah, yet I, now this there's a distraction there for a exactly, reason. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. What's the point of having the abstraction? Although, again, let's go back to your earlier argument, which is, why are you trying to keep the language anyway? Yeah, well, <laughs> well, there are good reasons to keep the language. I mean, we have a lot invested in the, in the language in terms of our, our skills. And, uh, you know, not everybody can pick up a new language and, and stick to it. So it's not so much keeping the language that's the issue. Is why do we need to evolve it? Mm-hmm. Why do we need to add a feature every yeah. year? Why, are we better off, why aren't we better off creating a new language focused exactly. on those new things? Right. right. Let's stop taking these languages and turning them into you know, warehouses full of boat anchors. Right. Yeah. Well, it's this old story of you, you, know, you never seem to declare a project done and successful. You have to run it into the ground and be <laughs> ab- abandoned. <laughs> We must add new features. You've got to build new features. Yes. And if you're not building new features, then it's abandoned. And it's doomed. And why would you ever use that again? So the model here that I like is the, the C language, right? They, right. They, they finally did one last modification to it uh, back in the 90s. And then they said, okay. C is done. Sorry. This is what it is. Yeah. Now, I don't know how much longer C is going to survive as a language, but... Didn't Kernighan and Richie declare it a hoax? <laughs> <laughs> it we never meant this. We, we stopped when, we, when this line of code compiled. It's like 240 characters of cartoon character swearing. <laughs> <laughs> that compiled, we knew we were done. Yep. <laughs> that was actually it was Alan Kay that said something similar. I never meant small talk to be to be used by anybody. It was just an experiment. Not a very good one either. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Remember that whole small talk thing? Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I just read the equivalent about the blink tag. That the blink tag was a drunken <laughs> dare that got into this investigation. <laughs> but it's so useful. I put it on all my websites. <laughs> Jeez. That was some guy trying to graduate from college. That's what that was. I'm wondering if we're going to have a Ruby on Rails type event, like a language that sort of comes out of nowhere with a set of scaffolding and tooling around it that just thinks differently about this problem, and it's just going to rock it away. If you really want to exercise the machine, you want to build stuff this way, it's going to be something totally new and, and blindside us all. Bob's smug because he's got a language he's working <laughs> no, on. No, no, I, no, I don't. No, no. It's called yeah. Bob. Yeah, it's the Bob language. <laughs> when everybody's using Bob, the world will be a much better place. Just I mean, use Bob! <laughs> there will be no more hunger or poverty. Um, you know, it could be. I don't know. I, I don't know if anybody's working on a framework like that. It, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, well, we had a great interview a while back with some Erlang folks. Oh, and they're yeah, interesting. Erlang, cats. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're thinking of, they're very much thinking different. Again, not a new language, but been, been right, around 30 something yeah. years, yeah. but came from a different, came from the Ericsson space, yep. you know, very telco oriented and, and very inherently parallel. And we learned that the whole telephone system runs on Erlang. Well, at least show. some parts of it, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, again, it feels like what's old is new. Like, are we re- how much so, are we actually inventing that's new in this space? That's a real interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, when is the last time we saw a new language that was truly new? 
New, new. Yeah. yeah. Um, we've seen a bunch of new languages, but they're based on older languages. Yes. And, and they, they exhibit the same characteristics as older languages. Mm-hmm. F-sharp, Closure, Scala. They're all just old rehashes, right? Yeah. With some they're nice new stuff, but deeply But again, there is value in that. Of course there's value in that. But, but how long can we go on with this derivative notion? When's the last time we saw something like Prologue? That was new. Yeah. Or so new, everybody went, like, what? what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Still or, doing uh, it today? Fourth. Fourth. Yeah. You know, where everybody went, huh? no. <laughs> you, you wouldn't actually do that. Right? So, I don't love the, pa- the bracket enough to do fourth. <laughs> Small talk was a new language. Mm-hmm. That was just a new thought. But in the last 30 years, has there been a new thought of that nature? And I can't name one. Can't yeah. name a good one. I think there's been some interesting stuff in the data warehousing area and cubes and all that stuff. But from the point of view of a language, we may have explored the space. Mm-hmm. There may not be another revolutionary new language coming. And if that's the case, then maybe we ought to toy with doing the opposite and starting to prune the space down to one language. Right. Well, and, it, and I love the... You remember the good old days where Java was one language on every platform? Oh, yes, And right. .NET yeah, was yeah, any yeah, language yeah. on yeah. one platform? <laughs> and, and then they made parts of the .NET framework run on, to the, on, the, on the OS X and through Silverlight. And yeah. the JVM exploded with languages. And pretty much everybody programming .NET now seems to be programming in C Sharp. So, we, you know, they've completely role reversed. There you go. Right? Well, so... I toy with the idea that there is a language coming, mm-hmm. a single language. It's uh, going to pull all these things together. Uh, and and um, sometime in the future, there'll be a utopia of programmers, and we won't ask, what language do you program in? Because it'll be the language. But, I mean, there are <laughs> fundamental distinctions. I mean, when you talk about very fundamental distinctions, you talk about static versus dynamic. Yep. But they're fundamentally different. Yep, they are. And when you talk about... You know, functional versus pr- procedural. Like, they're fundamentally different. Yeah, it seems if there was going to be one language, it would truly be the Frankenstein language, and that's something that it sounds like you're so arguing that's, against. That's one, one way of looking at it. It could be the Frankenstein language. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scala seems to want to go that direction. <laughs> uh, C++ went that direction. But if we look at what a paradigm is, you know, what is, what is OO? Yeah. OO made it possible for us to not use pointers to functions. Right. We could use polymorphism instead. Mm-hmm. Structured programming made it possible for us not to use go-to. Yep. Functional programming makes it possible for us not to use assignment statements. Mm-hmm. These paradigms all removed something. They didn't give us anything. Right. They but, took something away and imposed discipline. Right. So the language that conforms to all of those things has taken away almost everything there is. You know, there's hardly <laughs> anything left. And is the end language the, the parsimonious language, the language that barely allows anything, as opposed to the, the octopus language that allows everything? Right. I think that would be an interesting, interesting outcome. Uh, we all program in a language that is intrinsically structured, OO, and functional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, so, and you can't actually do anything. Well, right. Okay. <laughs> it's all right, but it's a perfect language. Perfect, we don't, we yes. don't need to do anything because we have the perfect mode of expression. Yeah. How do I do that? Oh, just write yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Ostensibly, we did this in Lisp, but actually, we hacked it in Perl. Another XKCD, right? Another XKCD. <laughs> 
Oh, no. Uncle Bob, you're too funny. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Just messing with our space. So uh, we haven't talked about software craftsmanship at all, because that's not the topic for today. No. But, no. Uh, and it, certainly I'm a, I'm a fan. Uh, what are you working on next? Like, where are you headed here? Is, 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 are these things like craftsmanship really your focus going forward? Or how much do you think about language? And From a... Language? Um, so I, you know, I, I'm a multifaceted being. Without a doubt. I mean, um, and I watch your Twitter feed with great pleasure because I do, because <laughs> you do say, I need to sit down and learn a language today and yes. I'm bloody going to do it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then you curse for about, I don't know, three days. <laughs> and then you come out the other side with, okay, that was interesting. Yeah, yeah well. <laughs> um, so I do stay very technically focused. Mm-hmm. I want to be, you know, in, in the middle of these language discussions and technology discussions. And that's just my own interest. My moral uh, mission is this craftsmanship and professionalism mm-hmm. thing. Uh, as a an industry, we have been woefully irresponsible and need to grow up. Mm-hmm. You know, as an industry, it's a young industry, fifty years old. Yep. it's time for us to grow up and and take on uh, take on our responsibilities. I have a, a fear. And that the fear is that we're surrounded by software. Um, there's software running in like every cubic foot of us of our civilization. Sure, every cubic centimeter. Yeah, I, and and so how often do you put your lives in the hands of some line of code written at three a.m. by a twenty-two year old? Right, and it's probably too often. Yeah. So sometime in the future, I don't know when. There will be an incident, an accident. There'll Thousands be, of people will die. Right. It's the, their, uh, the Iron Ring event from engineering. Something. Right? Something. Yeah. And the politicians of the world will rise up in righteous indignation and declare that laws must be created to we will restrain be these evil and licentious programmers. And when that happens... If they look at our industry and find a bunch of irresponsible behavior, mm-hmm. they'll be justified in that. Right. If not, then we can put some back pressure and say, wait, you know. No, no, We are professionals. Well, we've been trying anyway. You know, Washington is already trying to regulate apps just because they're so popular. Yes. Well, that, that's, you know, it's the sort of uh, the start of it. Let's see. Could we get some money off of the yeah, tax exactly. revenue? Yeah. See, okay, I always sure. thought that Y2K was going to be our Iron Ring event. Was going to be that was where the, the computers were all going to bail on us because we didn't deal with yeah. dates properly. You know, I was at a, at a New Year's Eve party mm-hmm. uh, uh, year 2000, and the lights went out for 30 <laughs> seconds. And, you know, the whole, the whole crowd is sitting and going, huh. And then the lights came on and we went on because, party. you know, Joe would turned off the switch. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. This will get a bunch of geeks a bunch in the room. Of, yeah. Shut the lights off right at midnight. Hey, watch this. <laughs> There's a guy at ComEd <laughs> going, ding, 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 ding. She's pulling switches. I bet I can cause this fuss. <laughs> yeah, it was an interesting moment. Yeah. Uh, Y2K wasn't the event. Yeah. Right? We got away with it. We did. Um, this will be something else. Who knows? And maybe we'll get lucky for a century. I think that, you know, problems were fixed during Y2K. Remember, there was two years of serious uh, cashing yeah, in yeah. by anyone who could write a line of code. It was good to be a COBOL programmer. Oh, yeah. Those two oh, yeah. years. <laughs> a lot of money. <laughs> or an access programmer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> uh, Uncle Bob, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. Always. Come back and see us again. I will. All right. See you guys later. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, PluralPsych.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. PluralPsych.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 